are going to continue. This is week three of a four-week series in the book of Philemon, which is not Philippians. It's a much smaller book. Philemon's only one chapter. Uh, I do want to say this. Uh, we had a little bit of an issue earlier with the um, confession. And um, I was made aware of the fact that if you got your sermon notes on the way in, it actually has the wrong date on it. How many of you noticed? December. That's on me because I generate those every week. But I want to say this. This is not a production that we critique. It's not a show that we judge. Our job as disciples, our calling is to get over ourselves and to hear from the God of the universe. So we sit humbly, listening humbly, and remembering that we get it as right as we can, right? We actually are professionals. We do get paid to do this. But you know what? It is what it is. And if you came looking for a show, you came to the wrong place. Not because of Capital City Church, but because that's not what the body of Christ is. It's not Disney and it's not the Oscars. It's not. We're learners. I didn't hear that. Anyway, it's my little pastoral rant. If we're not careful, we miss the fact that I just got to listen to my son read scripture. Right? And in the back, when the computer froze, that's three teenagers back there figuring it out. Serving you, by the way. And at the end of this service, we're going to pray to commission another high schooler that's going to the Dominican Republic to serve other people this week. Get you some of that. Let's be careful what we critique, right? That wasn't for you. That was for the people behind you. <laughs> Verse 12. I am sending him back to you, barging right into the middle of a thought. Paul talking to Philemon about Onesimus, says, I am sending him back to you. Sending, what does it say? My very, hang on to that. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. So, as we mentioned, it is not December 21st, 2023, as it says at the top of your sermon notes. It is, in fact, January 21st. Uh, this is part three of a four-part series. Our series is called Philemon, subtitle, Freedom Through Forgiveness. It's the only true path to freedom. Uh, our sermon title for this week, which is, as far as I know, everything else on your sermon notes is correct. I think I just messed the date up. Uh, and I got the number right, but I missed the month and the year. How do you even do that? 
I, I don't know. Sermon title today is called A Family Thing. This is a family thing. For those of us who are a part of the body of Christ, which I will go ahead and say, it might not be all of us in this room if you've not put your faith in Christ, if you're investigating, if you would you know, consider yourself a skeptic, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. Everybody in this room at one point or another was a skeptic. That's how it works. So um, it's a safe place to learn and listen. Uh, but for those of us who are a part of the body of Christ, who would call ourselves Christ followers, we would use the term Christian uh, we would say that we're disciples. It is, in fact, a family thing. And what I mean by that is this. Paul is now in this storyline, and I would remind you, it's very important that you understand the story of Philemon if you're going to understand the letter, the, what we call the book of Philemon, because it's very strongly um, rooted in a story. There was something that was happening, uh, and Paul is going to raise the stakes. So generally speaking, what happened is this. Uh, Paul was in prison in Rome. This is probably somewhere around A.D. 60 or 61. Paul's in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest, which means he's not in a cell. Uh, he's probably living at his own expense, and he has, he's able to have people come and go and visit him. Uh, but he very much is not a free man, uh, whether, whether literally or figuratively. He is in chains for the gospel. He's bound for the gospel and yet he's writing these letters. So he writes four what we call prison epistles in the New Testament, which is our Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and yeah, the one that you're, we're studying right now. Philemon, sorry, just trying to see if you're listening. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are written to churches. It was the church at Ephesus. It's the church at Philippi. It's the church at Colossae, right? And then he kind of tacks on this personal separate letter, but he, he kind of sends them together with the, with the book of what we know Colossians because um, Philemon lived in Colossae. And in fact, uh, he was a leader at the church in Colossae. He was a wealthy citizen. And uh, the church in Colossae actually met in his house. And so Paul sends a letter to the church in Colossae, but he also kind of sends this personal note which is what we know as the book of Philemon, because Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus had fled. He had run away, and Paul is now bringing restoration, and he's going to talk about forgiveness, and really this whole short letter, this power-packed letter, which the more you understand the context, the more you understand how dynamite this thing really is, right? It really centers around this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation, uh, and so that's kind of where we find ourselves. And, and by the way of review, we talked about this last week. And I'll say this, uh, many of you were not here last week because of the weather. And we get that. We understand that. Um, time out very quickly. Uh, generally speaking, when the elders are making a decision, especially mostly obviously during the winter, about whether we're going to have church based on the weather it's always going to be on road conditions. It's always going to be based on that. And most specifically because our, our setup folks have to get here early and one of them's driving a big truck and pulling a big trailer. Uh, so no offense, but if you're not one of those people, you're, we're secondarily thinking about you. We're primarily thinking about them. So if you think to yourself, well, I could have gotten there just fine. Well, that might not have been what was on our mind. It's more the people who are showing up here at 6.30 in the morning, you know, on icy roads, et cetera, et cetera. 
Having said that, we understand last week we had church and, and several of you chose not to be here and we think that's probably wisdom on your part. Everybody has to figure that out for themselves. Commercial's over. You need to go back and watch that sermon if you weren't here. Because it really carries this story through. And one of the things we unpacked last week was what slavery looked like for them. And I'll give you just the short version. It, when you think of slavery, you think probably of 18th, 19th century, what slavery looked like in America, what we know about what slavery looked like, what we've learned about what slavery looked like. By the way, that's basically how slavery looked around the world during that time. It wasn't just here. This is not that kind of slavery. Now, that doesn't make slavery okay. It doesn't make it acceptable, but it's not the same context. In this context, slaves had a lot more freedom. They had a lot more dignity. For the most part, they had a lot more rights. Uh, they were educated. They could own property. And, and honestly, for in Roman culture, which is this was a part of the Roman Empire, in Roman culture, slaves were actually not the bottom of society. The bottom of society would have been day laborers because that means every day they have to try to find work so that they can have food, which would explain why we know this is historically true. Many people actually sold themselves into slavery because they knew then they had job security. They knew where their, their uh, food was going to come from. They knew where their housing was going to come from. As crazy as that sounds, this was a very unique historic time. Having said that, Onesimus fled. Now, the other thing we talked about last week, which I think is also really important to this storyline, is that most slaves at this time would have known that probably by the time they were 30 years old, if not before, they would have gotten their freedom. It wasn't a lifetime thing. It wasn't you can't get out of this, right? You, you, you earned your way out. You climbed your way out. And so for Onesimus, he would, would have known, it would have been in his mind that this is not a permanent thing, but he fled and he likely stole on the way out. In fact, we can tell, and we're going to unpack a little bit more today, in these verses, uh, we, can, we can pick up on, from what Paul's saying, uh, what's the backstory here? Well, the backstory was that Onesimus fled, and so not only did he deprive, or yeah, not Onesimus fled from Philemon, not only did he deprive Philemon of his own labors, which would have provided, um, it would have saved Philemon money from having to hire other people to do that. But he also took something. We don't know what he took. I was talking to Pastor Aaron this week, and I found this interesting. I, I, I learned pretty quickly, he knows a lot more about the context of Philemon than I do. He's, he's just throwing this stuff out. And I'm like, man, where, where did all this come from? I didn't know that. So uh, this is interesting. I didn't know this. Uh, there's one theory that it's possible that Onesimus actually stole a horse. That was how he fled, that he stole a horse, which, this is not my joke, it's his joke, would have made it Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> That's pretty good. All the dads in the room have to laugh at that. That's a pretty good joke right there. Uh, so did he steal a horse? Did he steal money to finance his escape? We don't know, but it's likely that he stole something. It's also likely that before he fled, he had been treated with a level of dignity Try, again, trying to set the stage, not trying to excuse anything, um, you know, not trying to okay anything. It's li likely that he had been treated with a level of dignity and that he had a level of freedom. And it's certain that his life could have been worse, for sure. 
So Philemon, whether you think he should or not, he would have seen this as a betrayal. And you may not agree with that take, but can I ask you this? Have you ever been betrayed? Nobody? Wow, this is an interesting room, right? No. Probably 100% of us could say that we've been betrayed, right? We could tell our story. Can I tell you, I think your story's probably valid, right? Like, there's certainly misunderstandings, and there are certainly difficulties that can be chalked up to misunderstandings, but there are also some difficulties that arise from the fact that one person was right and one person was wrong. Can I get a witness? This is one of those, actually. There's a clear right and a clear wrong. One person clearly wronged another person. One person clearly betrayed another person. And if I had the opportunity, which I would love to do if I had the time, I'd have coffee with every one of you individually. And I'd ask you to tell me your story. Tell me your story of betrayal. Could I tell you? I bet you'd convince me. I bet you would. And then I would tell you my story of betrayal. And I know I would convince you. Because I'm convinced. I know that I didn't do anything wrong. And I know I was betrayed anyway. We read about this in Psalm 41.9. David said, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. In other words, and this was our story of betrayal. This person was a guest in my home. This person ate my groceries. (laughs) Come on. Has lifted his heel against me. That's a tough story, isn't it? Here's the question I want to ask you. Now what? I'm not trying to belittle the fact that you were betrayed or that I was betrayed. I think it's a big deal. But now what? There's a clear right and a clear wrong. One person shouldn't have done what they did. The other person, you know, is the guilty party. What's the way forward? Do we just sit and stew in that? I think most of us know that's a bad idea. So how do we move forward? How do we move forward? Very interestingly, check this out. When we are betrayed, we often prefer separation to reconciliation. What do you mean, Tim? Listen, I have a friend who says this, and it cracks me up every time he says it because I know he means it, and I I understand what he's saying, but it also sounds funny when you say it out loud. Listen, he'll say this. I'm fine with him, but I'm fine with him as long as he's over there. That's a part of our betrayal story, isn't it? Here's the point I'm trying to make, and I need you to hear this. I need you to lean into this. Don't miss this or you're going to be confused for the rest of this sermon. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Okay? You absolutely have to forgive. That's not a question. But reconciliation involves the restoration of the relationship. That's not always possible for a lot of reasons, because of geography, because maybe the person's not even alive anymore, right? That's not always possible, the restoration of the relationship. And I will say this, it's not always wise. It's not always wise. Forgiveness is always what we should seek. We should seek to forgive others. 
Is reconciliation always an option? Absolutely not. But I want you to hear this, and this is like my pastor's heart wants you to hear this. You need to be careful that you're not avoiding reconciliation because of that. Because I just would prefer to be separated. This is something I think you need to pray through. It's something you need to think through. It's something you may need to talk to someone about. For some of you, we may open some doors today, and I would remind you of this as a church uh, we offer uh, scholarships. We have a scholarship program with a couple of different um, Christian counseling offices in the area. And we will let, you can come talk to me afterwards. We would love to help you uh, get involved with that. That's, that may be a good and healthy thing for you to try to unpack that with someone, right? Reconciliation is a really serious thing. And yet we need to be careful that we're not dismissing it whole, uh, uh, just out of whole hand, Right? Because of this. Because it's just easier to avoid it. So Paul's in custody. He writes this letter. He says in verse 12, this is really, you get, it takes him 11 verses, right? Which he didn't write verses. He just wrote a letter. But we're almost halfway through this letter and he's now getting to the heart of the reason that he wrote the letter. And he says this, I am sending him... Onesimus, your runaway slave, I'm sending him back to you, sending, say it with me, my very heart. Now, let's pretend that you and I are Philemon. We've been wronged. Onesimus ran away and he stole from us on his way out. We probably don't like him very much, do we? But we love Paul. We love Paul. We consider ourselves as partners with Paul. There are a few themes that you see running through this short letter. One of them, I've said, I had you say the word out loud, sending my very, that word, the Greek word that's used in the original letter comes up over and over and over. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. One of the other themes that runs through this letter is fellowship. And they would have seen fellowship. We're going to talk about that in just a second. We're going to see fellowship as partnership. And Philemon considered himself a partner with Paul in the gospel. What are you saying, Tim? Listen up. See if you've ever done this. I wonder if Philemon, when he read this, didn't say something like, Wait a second, Paul. You're not supposed to be friends with him. Because I like you, but I don't like him. I have a lot of respect for you. I lost all respect for him. Has anyone in here told this story ever at all? Have you been alive for more than three seconds? Isn't this true? Someone you don't care for, suddenly you find that they're close friends with someone you have a lot of love and respect for, and you say, wait a second. You're supposed to feel about them the way I feel about them. Which is what I find fascinating. Listen, Paul does not mention Onesimus' repentance. Here's the thing, check it out. Most of the time, in order for there to be reconciliation, we're not talking about forgiveness, we're talking about the restoration of a relationship. Most of the time, in order for that to happen, someone has to repent. They have to say, I was wrong, and I'm sorry, right? This is just the way human relationships work. Someone knows someone an apology. 
It's very difficult. It's kind of fraught like, a, like navigating a minefield if you try to move forward without that. Paul doesn't say that here. Now, we know that Onesimus was repentant because he went back. See, Paul didn't just send a letter. He also sent Onesimus. You got to go back and you got to make this right. But he doesn't talk about it here. See, he does what you and I wouldn't do. And I'm not necessarily always recommending that you do this, but I do find it interesting. Paul inserts himself as the third wheel in a two-wheel conversation. Listen, you guys don't get along because one of you wronged another one. And how many times would you and I say, hey, I'm Switzerland over here. Isn't this what we do? Well, I'm not going to choose sides. It's not what he did. And I got to wonder if Philemon's response wasn't something like, you're not supposed to be friends with him. And yet Paul knows, we're going to unpack this at the end today. Paul knows that something's changed. Something shifted. There's a, new, there's a new chapter in the story. There's a new part of the narrative that you might not know. Here's your point in your notes. We must value reconciliation enough to occasionally leverage our own influence for its sake. We must value reconciliation enough to occasionally leverage our own influence for its sake. Again, this was a context where one person was clearly right and one person was clearly wrong. And what Paul says here, because he knows the story of the person who was wronged and the person who ultimately came to faith in Christ, he circles back to Onesimus who, who had been wronged but who is spiritually mature, who is a leader in his church, and he says, reconciliation needs to happen here. And I'm going to barge right into the middle of your betrayal, and we're going to talk about it. I'm going to help you unpack this. Does reconciliation matter that much? In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus portrays reconciliation alongside anger and murder. You remember this? He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not murder. But I'm saying to you, if you're angry with your brother, I'm, trans, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now. I'm saying to you, if you're angry enough with your brother to call him a fool, then you're guilty. To which perhaps you and I would say, but Jesus, he is a fool. That may be true, actually. Maybe not our job to call it, though. And then he says this in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, stop worshiping. You're not ready to worship yet. Now, I would ask you, does Jesus take reconciliation seriously? He does. He wouldn't have said that otherwise. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I gave you this quote in your notes. 
Our love ought to follow the love of God in one point, namely in always seeking to produce reconciliation. Listen, it's not always possible and it's not always wise, but it should always be our heart. It should bother us when it hasn't taken place. We should be able to say with clear conscience, I've done everything that I can do. On my side, I've done everything that I can do. Why? In the end of the Spurgeon quote. It was to this end that God sent his son. This is why Jesus came. To effect reconciliation. And some of you, your theological internal processor spooled up right now. Like it's spinning. I can see the smoke coming out of your ears. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a second. Jesus came to effect reconciliation this way. Correct. We're going to end with this idea today. Correct. But it will always flow this way too. And we can't have reconciliation this way and ignore whether or not we have it horizontally. That's not what Jesus came to produce. Verse 13, I would have been glad, Paul says, to keep him with me. At which point Philemon might have been thinking, are we talking about the same guy? The guy who was pretty useless? We unpacked this last week. It's another reason you need to go watch the sermon. Onesimus' name literally, which probably was not his real name, but this is what Philemon chose to call him, it means useful. This was a common thing for slaves at that time that the master would call the slave Onesimus. He's useful. And we're thinking, I hope he does prove to be useful. Hey, listen, spoiler alert, do you think Ones or do you think Philemon thought Onesimus was useful? No. I think he thought he was pretty useless. Which I think is fascinating then that he's reading this letter and Paul says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf. And Philemon perhaps would have said something like, he never served anybody. He wasn't useful. He wasn't helpful. How is he going to serve you in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel? So this person who had been named useful and who was perhaps viewed as useless, Paul says, now has become useful to you by ministering to me and I'm your friend. I'm over here in prison. We're partners. We're in fellowship. We're in koinonia around the gospel. And I'm in prison and you love me and you've been supporting me. I'm telling you, you were supporting me by allowing him to minister to me and you didn't even know it. He's been helpful to me. To which maybe you and I, if we were Philemon, might think something like, hey, that's a win-win. He can thrive over there as long as he stays over there. I'm okay with him as long as I don't have to see him. Not always the best option. I hope he thrives over there but I don't particularly want him over here. Here you go. Sometimes making peace means forgiving and dealing with the very thing that caused the conflict. 
Sometimes making peace means forgiving and also dealing with the very thing that caused the conflict. My wife and I were married uh, 21 and a half years ago. We got married in May and I started pastoring in August. And after a couple, three years, she would say this to me often, and she would say it kind of laughing, but kind of not laughing. I think you enjoy conflict. She would say this to me. I was pastoring a little Baptist church, and Baptists are known for conflict, for sure. So are humans, by the way. I think you enjoy conflict. And I would tell her, I really don't. I'm just not afraid of it. And I've learned that sometimes the way forward is through it. And we have to not be afraid of it so that we can get in the middle of it and sort it out and then get past it. Because truth is, in most of these situations, we need to get past it. And all the peacemakers in the room are shaking their head like, oh my goodness, what is this guy? Because that's not how you're wired, right? Avoid conflict at all costs. Well, we can't always avoid it. Sometimes it's not the best thing to avoid it if we're going to deal with it. Paul's saying here that, and I'm quoting, here's your little phrase, like, peace through distance. (laughs) We'll have peace as long as he's three states away. We'll have peace as long as she stays unfriended on Facebook, right? That's not always the best option. That's Paul's point here. That's not always good enough, especially if you're a Christ follower and the other person's a Christ follower. Verse 14, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent. Let me go back and read verse 13 so that you don't miss his narrative. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Here we go. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent. In other words, he was ministering to me, but you didn't know it, Philemon. I'm in prison. He's ministering to me, and he's still your slave. So in my mind, he was ministering to me on your behalf, but you had no idea. And I could have just left it that way. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Here's the thing. Check it out. Paul thought that Philemon needed to be an active participant in this narrative. And I don't know if this was at the front of his mind, but I think it's a principle that's true in this story, in this narrative. That Philemon, if Paul had done that, if Paul had said, you don't know anything about this, but we're just going to let him keep ministering to me, and we're just going to you know, not stir up any more dust here. He's actually robbing Philemon of the chance to choose to be a part of this narrative. Does that make sense? He's robbing Philemon. And Philemon had been robbed enough. We don't need to take one more thing from him. You get the chance to choose to be a part of this. I don't want to force you to do good. I don't want to force you to do the right thing. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That's a gentle euphemism, isn't it? He was parted from you, which is passive. 
should be the active voice, right? He parted himself from you. He wasn't parted by some unseen force. He parted himself from you, but this is the way he says it. This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back, what is the word? Permanently. Because this is not really, Philemon, about your household. This is bigger than that. It's not really just about your story, although your story is important. But your story is a part of a bigger story. Your story weaves its way into a grander narrative. There's something bigger here. And the bigger narrative is going to flow all the way down through eternity. And something has happened at that level. Something has happened on that scale. This doesn't feel like an opportunity to you. This would be the point where my wife would say, I think maybe you enjoy conflict. Because this is, I'm telling you, as your pastor, if you found yourself in this context, I would say something like this to you, and you might not be very happy with me for saying it, but I would say it anyway. This feels really hard. And it is really hard. But it's also an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to grow in your faith. It's an opportunity for you to perhaps deal with some of the bitterness that you feel. And I get that if you tell me your story, I would say that it's justified. Listen, look at me. But justified bitterness is still bitterness. There is a bigger purpose in the pain. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother. Translation. He's now a part of the faith. He is your brother in Christ. He ran from you. And along the way he was running from God. But God got a hold of him, and he's no longer running. He's part of the faith now, and the faith is going to try to bring reconciliation. That's what our faith does, especially to me. He's a beloved brother to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So listen, Philemon, you lost some money, but it turns out in the grander narrative You gained a brother in Christ. Which do you value more? Y'all listen up. There's a correct answer, and then there's an honest answer, isn't there? What's the correct answer? We always value the spiritual more than the financial or the physical or the material, right? This is really important. We're in church. You've got to say right. We always choose the spiritual. But what's the honest answer for most of us? If you've been wronged, do you have a ledger? you have a ledger? I said last week, I made this joke, that you could maybe prove in court 
how you were wronged. And the truth is, for some of you, you actually did prove it in court. That's not a joke. That's not a sermon illustration. You actually literally did that. Maybe rightly so. What's next? What's next? You lost some money. What if you gained a brother or a sister in Christ along the way? I'm going to remind you of this because it is my calling as your pastor to remind you of this. Always ask this question. Will it matter 10,000 years from now? If it won't, then you should be careful about believing that it matters too much right now. What will be more important? What they took from me or their eternal soul? Hmm. In Colossians 4, 9, Paul uses this language, which I just find fascinating. Remember, he sends this letter to Philemon, but then he writes an actual letter to the church at Colossae. He sends them together. In the book of Colossians, he says this, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. To which it's likely that the larger community would have been aware of what happened and they may have scratched their head and said, are we talking about the same Onesimus? What? That's not the guy I remember. That's not the story I was aware of. Here's my question, and I want you to look me right in the eye. Is it possible that God could write something new in their story? Is it possible that he might use you to be a part of it? The one who was wronged, is it possible? Is it possible that he already has written something new in their story and you just didn't know it yet? It is possible. Because no matter how much you and I know, and no matter how much you and I are aware of, we are not God. And he's always up to something bigger than us. He's always weaving together several stories. I gave you another quote from R. Kent Hughes. The cross is the ultimate evidence that there is no length that the love of God will refuse to go in affecting reconciliation. If you want to know how much God values reconciliation, look at the cross. So zoom out from your story. I'm not saying your story's not valid. Zoom out from it. Zoom out from the offense. Zoom out from replaying that grudge over and over and over. Zoom out from the conversations that you have in the shower when you imagine that I've got you just where I want you and I'm going to tell you. Zoom out from it. We cannot hold tightly to our grudges and also pursue God's kingdom. I wish that were not true. But it is. Ultimately, I'm going to have to decide which one will I cling to more. My grudges or God's great kingdom. If we're going to pursue righteousness, we need to be mediators. Very quickly, 
Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you think Jesus cared about righteousness? Is he calling us to care about righteousness? Hmm. Let me ask you in a different way. If we lock the doors... And we sit here for the next 24 hours and you have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. And I ask you that question 24 hours from now. Would you be hungry and thirsty? You would care about food and drink, wouldn't you? That's how much we should care about righteousness. That we hunger for it. That we thirst for it. Not that it's optional. This is I cannot live Without it. I don't just think it's interesting. I don't just think it's valuable. I don't just think it's useful. If we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we're going to hunger and thirst for God's kingdom, we have to be interested in reconciliation whenever it's possible, whenever there's an option for it. We'll finish with this verse. In fact, we're going to pray this verse. James 3.18 says this, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And all the peacemakers in the room are vindicated, right? We should be making peace. Sometimes we have to make it through dealing with the conflict, but ultimately we should be making peace whenever and wherever possible. Here's the interesting thing. It says that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I would remind you, the word righteousness, <coughs> theologically, is a synonym for the word justice. A harvest of God's justice in our circles, however wide your circle is, you have the opportunity to pave the way for a harvest of righteousness, for a harvest of God's justice by seeking peace whenever and wherever it's possible. If it's wise to do so and it's possible to do so, then we should be interested in it. We should be motivated by it. So here's the calling. And I know it's been a tough sermon. It has. It's tough to listen to. I appreciate you hanging with me. We're called to forgive. We're called to forgive those who have wronged us. Our model is that we've been forgiven for the ways that we've wronged our Heavenly Father. And even though some of us have been betrayed deeply, it doesn't compare to the ways that we've betrayed our God, does it? He forgives us. And He calls us to turn around and extend that forgiveness to those around us. And whenever it's possible... And whenever it's permissible and whenever it's wise to be open to the idea of reconciliation. I don't know what that looks like in your particular story. I can't know every particular story that's in here. But God knows it. So we're going to take a minute. We're going to pray together. We're going to ask God to help us be reconcilers. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've reconciled us 
to you. And now, as we'll unpack next week, you've now given us this ministry of reconciliation that begins by helping other people being reconciled to you, but especially when we have two humans who have both been reconciled to you, we would hope and we would pray that there's a way that they could be reconciled to each other. It's not always possible, but we can be hopeful. We can know that that's what would please you best. So give us wisdom as we navigate these situations, as we seek to be reconcilers out of being reconciled to you.